Hey everybody, it's Chris with the Running Rogue Podcast. I'm joined with Steve as always. Hey Steve. How's it going, Chris? Today we're excited to be starting a mini series of sorts on the Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon's coming up on April 17th, 2017, Marathon Monday. We are excited about it. We've got a big group of rogues, 50 plus, headed up to Boston. So we thought we'd do a little two-part series on the Boston Marathon and give you some of its history, talk about race strategy, and then also come back in our second episode and talk about some stories, some some heartwarming and inspiring <laughs> stories from the great history that is the Boston Marathon. So I'm excited about this. Aren't you, Steve? I'm super excited about it. It's a uh you know, only four weeks out from uh, from Boston at this point. We've got uh, all of our athletes for the last two weeks have been getting into their very in, they're deep deep now into their very specific marathon phase. We started that about two weeks ago. Um, a lot more volume, a little more marathon specific work, and uh, um, definitely working our hill angles on from up and down. So uh, I think this is perfect timing. If you're not excited about what's going on in Boston Marathon every spring, then I don't really think you're a marathoner. <laughs> Your athletes just ran 30 miles this past Saturday for their long run, and then today had a tough workout on a Thursday doing 3 by 5 k at marathon pace or faster and so yes <laughs> those are usually spring signals at rogue that boston is coming yeah and we're coming up to our most specific boston simulation run where we uh utilize the the wonderful uh mount Bennell balconies uh of mayfield park loop we may call the laguna gloria loop where we do that a couple times to try to really get the body ready to run a little slower coming downhill or getting your right your body pitch correct and also to work on um, understanding what your marathon goal pace is when you're coming down a hill and how to adjust so we'll be talking about a lot of those specifics today excited about that and um, again you know it's it's like when when I used to feel about when I was in, in high school when I, when I could smell people mowing the lawn. I knew it was track season. Um, now you start feeling a little bit of the heat in Central Texas, and you're like, okay, here we go, Boston time. It's getting close. Okay, so again, this is episode 14. We're going to cover this in two episodes. When this one comes out, it's going to be March 20th, which will be four weeks out from race day, and then we'll be releasing another one the week before on April 10th, a week before the 17th this series in this first we're going to get a little bit on boston history some fun facts you may not know about the race and we're going to talk about a, some way too early elite field predictions that steve and i have put together which we'll come back to you in the second episode of the series and then we're going to spend the bulk of the time today talking about preparing for boston both pre-run and how you handle the logistics of that weekend as well as what should your race strategy be so that you can start to prepare for those that might still be in their final several weeks of training we want you to be able to prepare for it so that's today and then we'll come back the next episode and we're going to spend it exclusively on getting you inspired by boston and sharing some some famous stories and histories and inspiration that comes from the race and its storied history so that, that'll be our series but as i said today we're starting off with some Boston history and facts, and with that, I've got for you, and I'd love to get your reactions as we go through these, Steve. I've got four did-you-know Boston facts that I wanted to share with, pe share with people. The first one 
happens to be about the the history or the length of the race. This will be the 120th running of the Boston Marathon this year. It started in 1897, which was a year after the first modern-day Olympics in 1896, where they had a 40K distance marathon. But this will be the first, or this will be the 120th running of the Boston, and Boston is the oldest continuously run marathon, period, in the world. And in North America, it happens to be, this is the kind of fun fact, it happens to be the second oldest road race, continuously run road race in North America. The Buffalo, New York Turkey Trot beat it by a little bit. It had the, <laughs> the Thanksgiving prior to the first Boston is when the Buffalo, New York Turkey Trot started. So Boston's oldest continuously run marathon, but only the second oldest continuously run race. As a part of that, there were, interestingly, there's only four of major sporting events in the U.S. that have been continuously run through both world wars. Some of the marathons, like New York, took a break during the world wars or part of the world wars because of the chaos of all of that. Boston went all the way through. There were three other sporting events that continued. One was the Kentucky Derby. Uh, another was the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl from college football fame. And then the last is the, the famous dog show yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. that I think was just recently on television. So those are some pretty big, those are some pretty big ones right there. You got four uh, American institutions, basically. I thought the Westminster dog show, right? Yes, Westminster, that that's it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not up on my dog trivia. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, the Westminster dog show, it was one of those that went through the World Wars as well. So... 1897, 120 years of this race. So much history. The second fun fact I wanted to share was the first Boston was actually run as a 24.5 mile race from Ashland to Boston. The Olympics the previous year was actually 40K. So they, they modified the distance slightly based on where they wanted the finish line. So that was 24.8 miles. Boston chose 24.5 miles from Ashland to Boston. And the first winner of Boston was a guy named John McDermott. He beat a field of 15 starters, 10 of which actually finished the race. And he finished that 24.5 miles in a time of 2 hours and 55 minutes. Woo! Which, if you extrapolate out to 26.2 miles, turns into a 307. Mm. Which means that those under 35 men that are qualifying at 305 or faster would actually have won wow. the very first Boston ever raced. That's pretty amazing right there. So that's that's crazy. All right, so third fact I wanted to share is Boston is always held on Patriots Day, or at least it uh, has a history of being held on Patriots Day. The first Boston was held on Patriots Day, April 19th in 1897. Patriots Day is a holiday celebrated in Massachusetts and Maine only to commemorate the start of the Revolutionary War with the battles of Lexington and Concord. Paul Revere rode his horse on April 19th in 1775 to alert the Revolutionary War folks that, hey, it's on. <laughs> and so so that was that's why Massachusetts celebrates Patriots Day. Interestingly, Patriots Day used to be a date, so it was April 19th every year, and that was true until 1968. And so if 
April 19th fell on a different day besides Monday. That's when the race was. So there were many, many Bostons that fell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays every day except for Sunday. If the race, because Sunday was a day of rest in the in the Catholic traditions of the Sabbath, they would push it to the 20th if, if Patriots Day ever fell on a, on a Sunday. But otherwise, it was run any other day of the week, including in 1968, which is the last year that it was run specifically on the 19th. Amy Burfoot of Runner's World fame won the race that year, and he won it on a Friday. Wow. Th- that year, they changed it from April 19th to the third Monday in April. So from 69 to today, it's always run on the third Monday in April, Marathon Monday as we've come to know it. So there you go. Big facts. Now, the other note on the Patriots Day point is that the very first Boston, because they were celebrating Patriots Day, they wanted to bring some of the inspiration from the reason for Patriots Day. So militiamen dressed as Revolutionary War militia actually rode alongside the racers and handed out lemons, water, and wet handkerchiefs <laughs> to commemorate the day. <laughs> so I'm not sure what they were doing yeah. eating lemons. Yeah, the other two make a whole lot of sense. Water and uh, and wet handkerchiefs could be very valuable. A little lemon in your mouth uh, at, at mile 22. Uh, not sure that that's really <laughs> prescribed anymore. For I'm not sure if the coaches of the world or athletes of the world are really looking for their, their lemon. Yeah. Maybe a le- lemon-flavored gel. That's about as good as we're going to get, lemon I think. Gatorade. Yeah, lemonade <laughs> Gatorade. Yeah, that could be. So there you go. So then then the fourth fact I wanted to share was the distance. So the first Boston, as I mentioned, was 24.5 miles. It wasn't until 1908 that the marathon became 26.2 miles at the London Olympics. But even subsequent marathons until 1921 were run at varied distances around 40K or close to 26 miles until the IAAF finally said, enough's enough, we're standardizing the distance. And in 1921, the IAAF codified 26.2 as the official distance, which had been run in 1908 at the Olympics. But six of the first seven Olympics all had different distances associated with them. And it wasn't until actually 1924 that Boston changed their course from starting in Ashland to going out to Hopkinton in order to get to that that official 26.2 mile distance. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I did not know that uh, you shared that with me offline right before we got started. And that's, that's pretty shocking to me to think that it took that long to sort of get it, to get it to that point. And again, you know, I guess the distance that uh, Phidippides had to run from uh, the battle, the, the, the plains of Thermopylae or wherever, whatever Persepolis or wherever he was <laughs> to, uh, to Athens to announce the, the, uh, the, the gut wrenching failure of the, Athenian army um it it's uh it's always been a little bit arbitrary um and I guess it kind of historically makes sense that early on it would be in the same way but I wonder if those um and it's just kind of interesting just to think of the idea of the marathon as a as a rangy distance you know as a sort of a like the things we call about just a generic race or, or or a run or whatever else it's now the marathon has such a it's just in our minds at 26.2 period and the ubiquity of seeing those stickers all over everywhere. And then the 13.1 suddenly becoming <laughs> this all important race as well. It's, you know, it, it's super, it's just, it's intriguing and interesting to me how the human race creates uh, uh, interesting 
histo- the, whole, the history of it is really interesting to me. It's a, it, it, again, it's food for thought, probably not much food, but at least it's food there's, for thought. There's probably a lot of marathoners out there that wish at times running a marathon that it was still 24.5. I'm sure you did last year. <laughs> right. I certainly did when, when I did Boston last year. We'll get to my story later. But that's that's a little bit of history. Oldest continuously run race, second oldest continuously run road race in North America. Pretty cool. Now, let's get to some way too early elite predictions. We've talked about the elite field in Boston, but we're going to talk about it again. And Steve and I have both put together our predicted top three for the race, and we'll be updating this on the second episode as we get more information about some last-minute race preps and how injuries might be playing out in the week prior. But I'm going to give you my top three men marathoners, and then you give me yours, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll and then we'll switch to the women's side. So my my prediction on the men's side is that we'll have two Ethiopians in on the podium, including I'm predicting that that Lemmy Hale will repeat. Mm-hmm. And and come back around and win again. Uh, you know how rare year. that is. It's it's rare. I think it's only happened one time, I believe. So <laughs> so so he's going to be in rarefied air. I mean, there have been multiple winners who have won the race, right. but never back to back. Not to not to not to repeat. Yes. So I'm predicting that Hale will win again, repeat champion. Rupp will finish second. Ooh. And and then Hale's countryman Sige will will finish out the podium. So he he actually finished on the podium last year as yeah, well. Yeah, he did. And so I'm kind of leaning in my predictions towards people with at least at the top with Boston experience. But give me your top three, and then we'll talk about it. All right. So I'm gonna go out on a big limb here, and I'm giving Galen the win because I think that Whoa. I think that. Uh, I think that this race will go slow enough for that to be the case. And it, this race team seems to typically, at least over the last couple, you know, the last 10 years or so, it seems to be an either out fast and roll race or a sit back and, and wait. Um, there have obviously been a few differences in there, but it, I think that either one of those plans still opt, optimize Galen's opportunity for a win because speed is the pace will not be the crucial thing. It will be a race. Um, whether or not he's going to be capable of, of being able to reel people in over the late part of the race if it goes out fast, uh, that's that's the one scenario. If it go, if the, the scenario is somewhere in between where the race is won and say, say 206, 207, I think that Galen will have a much, much harder time to win. Um, but I think if the race goes... Uh, I don't. I don't see any way the race is going to go faster than that anyway. So I think Galen's got a shot. So that's that's my first my pick, and then I'm going for number two. Uh, my second place finisher. I'm picking. You know, the Ethiopians all have have lately been pretty dominant at the Boston Marathon, as you indicated with your two in the top ten. I'm going with a different uh, Ethiopian though. I'm going to go with Cisse Lemma. Um, because this is a little bit of a, of an off one, but he basically, my, my, my logic isn't exactly perfect, but (laughs) he ran a 208 in Dubai and I think he got third or fourth and this was in January. So late January, January 20th in Dubai, I think he was third maybe or or somewhere in there. Uh, it might even have been second, but he, he, the winner just crushed the entire field. And I think he may have been 
laying up and waiting and using that as we sometimes use ourselves as a sort of 15% slower sort of race up as a way of getting some volume in and otherwise either that or he was just going for a payday. I don't you know, Dubai is known for the payday scenario, but right. that's my pick for number two. And then number three, I'm going way out on a limb with Joffrey Karui. Okay. Joffrey Karui went 208 in Amsterdam um, he's nine. He's he was born in '93, so he's one of the younger runners in the entire field. Yep. And I think that we're about due for a new a, a new Kenyan on the block. Um, and so I'm I'm going to pick him as my number three. Um, also, one of the things we want to talk about here, real quick, is that neither one of you or nor I picked the top four seeds in the race, who are all um, exceedingly fast, all sub 205. In fact, they're they're the the top. What is it? Top basically ten are almost eight or so are, are all sub two hundred five runners. But we didn't pick any of those guys to be the winner because in my mind, Boston is the perennial gamers race, and I just think it's going to come down to that. Um, and I, I do not think that Kometo, Mutai, or Macau are going to have the skills. But if one of those three, if I get to throw another little prediction in, and if one of those three does it, I'm going to go with uh, Patrick Macau because I think he can. I think he can race. So yeah, Kometo is the current world record holder. He Correct. also has a DNF at Boston, mm-hmm. the year Meb won in 2014. So, so I agree with you. I think the the fast on paper Kenyans. There's a combination of issues there. One is that they're used to paced races. Boston is not that. And the second is that a lot of their PRs, it's been a little while. So they, so the questions of their current fis- fitness start to come into play. Back to your point on Karui, I actually had him in my Ooh. in my top four. Uh-huh. It was kind of between him and Sige mm-hmm. for that podium spot. I think the other Kenyan that could challenge for the podium is Kitwara. Yeah. Similarly, kind of mm-hmm. young guys, up and coming, hasn't. Doesn't have the same history as some of the other guys, but might be a surprise. I think it could be a year for a Kenyan flyer, and that's why I've got Karui in my list. So, okay, and so, and going just recapping my so for me, I went with the the Ethiopians with Boston experience that seem to Mm -hmm. have some more recent history. Let me hail who won Boston last year. He ran a two hundred four Dubai last year. Right. So he's got both the race experience and the wheels and the PR to justify. And so you know, that makes my argument for, for Lemma because he also ran Dubai and it did not seems to be a no, bit no, of a... I'm of talking a, about Dubai 2016, not 2017. Right. He did it, but he did it the year he won. Fair enough. Right. Yeah, yeah, so just enough. like I'm calling yeah, yeah, Lemma that in the same year, yep. they both ran Dubai. And I think that might be that, that that it could be that there's a plan there. I don't know who's coaching yep. these athletes necessarily, but it could be that there's some sort of consistency patterning going on there. Because um, I noticed that, too, that that he had had a 16, a 2016 Dubai win. Now, Lemma did not win, but uh, he he certainly um, could have been doing a layup. So we'll see. Yep. And that's where I think. I, I think Rupp's going to struggle when when you get to that 22 to 26 point and you've got to have something left and he's just not, he doesn't have the experience yet. And that course is significantly tougher than what he's run. So I think he'll have a good day, but I'm knocking him down just a little bit based on experience. And I think that his coach is the consummate professional who will have him prepared for every section of that race course, having run and won there at, at being his uh his 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 original stomping grounds we're talking about al sal alberto zalazar yep. um i think that i think that i'm going to give him the tip and i'm going to go with galen 
for my I'm not a typically an American flag waver stars and stripes guy necessarily all the time but in this case I just think if there's a chance um, I think it's that uh, one other thing Meb I don't I don't I just don't think it's going to be possible so <laughs> I think Meb is going to treat this like a victory lap I, as well he should yep. incredibly well earned all right, so that's the men's side, and we'll circle back on these predictions as we get about a week out so that we can see what's going on with some of the prep races and injuries. Now let's switch to the women's side. I'm going to let you start with your top three, and then I'll give you mine. Again, just give me the top three, then we can debate. Cool. All right, so number one, Edna Kiplagat. That's who I'm picking. She was 2016 third at Tokyo. 2016 second at Chicago. Guess what? It's time for a winner. She's going to win at Boston. I think that that is, uh, while it is a, a pretty heavy race schedule, it's really not super heavy for a marathoner who's in his prime, uh, who's in her prime. And I think that Edna is, uh, where, where we talked about the, the Ethiopians kind of being a little bit stronger on the men's side and having had a, a, some history over the last couple of years. The women on the women's side, the Kenyans have been absolutely dominant. I'm going with the Kenyan winner. Um, number two, I'm going to I'm going to I want to give Desi a win, but I don't think Desi's just going to be able going to be able to do it. I think that uh, her seventh at Rio was an incredibly great race, but I just think she's going to not going to be. I think she just I think she's just not going to be good enough for the win, but I think she's super hungry for it. And I think they will have had all the stops pulled for her to be prepared for this race on this day. So I'm going to I'm, I'm going to pick Desi for number two and number three. I'm going to go with uh, Gladys Chirono. Um, she ran 219 in 2015. I think that she is currently the world number one or in that ballpark range. She's in, she's definitely in the, in the tops of the world marathon list this year, um, going in. And I think that she's got a really good shot, uh, in that zone. I just think that Edna's not going to be, not going to be turned around. So that's, those are my, my top three, uh, Kiplagat, Linden and, uh, Chirono. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're, we had a little bit of over, overlap on Kiplagat. But other than that, we're different. So I'm again predicting Ethiopian dominance. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. I want an Ethiopian kick here. We've got, <laughs> uh, I'm predicting Deba, Bezanish Deba yeah. will, will mm-hmm. get the win. She has a prior Boston win, although not last year, right. and has the current course record. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm giving her the edge because of the experience, and she definitely has the wheels because she ran 219 there when, when they went off crazy off the front with, with, um, Shalane. Now she didn't win that year in 2014 because Jeptu ultimately was disqualified. So she was second that year, but she's she got was. A history she should of, get the win. But she has the win now. She's been credited right. with it since Jeptu has been disqualified. So she's the official winner and had a a solid year. And now is the official course record holder for Boston in in, in 2019. So I'm predicting that she'll win. That her countrywoman who won last year will will get second. At, and I'm going to completely botch this name, but at, at Cita Besa, she ran a 2:22 last year for the win. Again, she was just absolutely crazily. I mean, she was just it was just a beast of a show. She was right, and she finished really strong. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, so I'm kind of giving a nod to experience there. She also had another result that I don't have in front of me, but that was pretty impressive to follow that later in the fall. So I think. I think she's and she's younger, so she's up and coming. And then for third, I'm I'm going with Kiplagat. I like her on the podium, and it wouldn't surprise me if she was one or two, as you mentioned, having her at one. But she's getting a little bit long in the tooth mm-hmm. at 37, so I'm concerned that she's gonna be able to hang with the younger 
rabbits from Ethiopia. So I put her on the podium, but at, at the third spot. And unfortunately, I just don't see any scenario where Dez can get there. I think the, the challenge for Dez is I love how she races and, and that she runs her own race. I would imagine that she and Jordan Hesse might end up together potentially at some points running a similar rhythm. But I think it's really difficult whether the race goes out fast or whether the race goes out slow to just run your rhythm and come from behind in the modern marathon. Now that could have worked five or six years ago. It almost worked Mm -hmm. in, I think it was 2012 or 13 when she got second. And so, but it's different now. It is. It's different now. So I, I would love to see Desi on the podium. That would, that would certainly make me happy, but I just don't see it happening. Yeah, no harm, no foul. That's why we make these predictions. We'll see where we're at in a in a couple of weeks. If we get any if we get any closer or get any more intel on 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 people, we'll get more news output as we get closer to the race. We'll get more details on what's going on. Maybe we'll even get some rumors about where people's fitness is and and where their injuries are. Um, I I'm honestly I'm I think uh, other than Galen's um, positioning in the men's race. Um, I'm way more excited about what's going to happen in the women's race. I think we're going to see a, a great race. And the women do have a tendency at Boston, no matter what, to go for it. So uh, they do. They don't. They, they, they rarely lay back. And uh, I do think that plays into Desi's hands a little bit. Um, but again, if they do choose to go slow like they did one year uh, where Desi had to do the work, I think that was like two years ago, I think 2015, wasn't it? When it was it or where Desi got to the front and had to do a Big, a good bunch of the work, and they just blew by her and left her in the dust. She just could yeah. not, she just couldn't yeah, go it with it. So, ago. yep. And if anybody thinks we're crazy and has better ideas about Let this, please share, and we'll talk about that on our on our second show in the series. All right. So, with that as our intro, we're going to dive into course strategy, talking both about pre-race planning and logistics, and then also how you break down the course itself, similar to how we broke down the Austin Marathon course several episodes back. One thing I'll point you to is episode five, where we talked about generic marathon race planning, sort of non-course specific. So I would definitely encourage you, if you're planning to run Boston, to listen to that because you're going to get some additional tips about running any marathon and how do you prepare for that that we won't be talking about today. But, but we will have very different. We'll have a very different description of what we think you should do for Boston. So yes, yep. again, go back there and read that. But it's also really good. I think it's one thing that's really cool, Chris, is that. Doing this podcast, we're able to really highlight a variety of different scenarios, which um, maybe takes people many, many years of experience to be able to get. And with our years and years of, I mean, basically hundreds of years of marathon coaching experience, if you want to take the number of athletes that we've coached and how many times they've run, and it, it, you know, you're, I'm stretching it there with hundreds, but we we've had hundreds of people run this this race, and then if we consider what Rogue has done over the number of years with the marathon in general. Um, we, we, we've, we've been able to, to play these things out. And so what's a generality as we, as we talked about in episode five is uh, getting a lot more specific, um, when we talk about particular races as we did with Austin and as we are going to with Boston here. Exactly. So we'll divide this up into sort of pre-race thoughts. And then during the race, how do you break it down as we go into the pre-race? The thing, first thing I wanted to tee up is the late start and how you deal with it. And, and as we jump in, I'm going to share a story about my first Boston because it's relevant as it relates to the late start. But I ran my first Boston in 2006. Interestingly, I qualified for that race in February of 2006 at Austin and then still was able to sign up and race in April. So it shows you how much things have Ten changed. Ten years. 
in, in, in 10 years or 10, now you can't even you get years. your boston qualifier and you don't even get to go to boston exactly which so, by the way i'm calling bullshit on because i don't get very many opportunities to do it boston you need to change it change that rule either make the time faster but don't steal a bq from people all right i'll get back the on only my thing i like about that steve and we can argue about it for just a second is <laughs> That the one thing it ensures is that everybody who goes to Boston left it all on the course for their qualifier, <laughs> right? You can't stand back. That is very true. And I do think there is a there is a great benefit to that, that people are not just are not just tapping it. But the movable I just think that there's something more magic about this race and like I would not want us to change our Olympic trials qualifying standard to some other model other than one, two or three. I just think the idea of 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 making a changeable ongoing ongoing shifting sort of target for the Boston Marathon um, makes it a real challenge and a real and a real sadness because you, you don't because you don't really know where you're at um, and it, it's just to me if if the reason that that's happening is I my guess is the reason why this is happening is because they've got celebrity runners they got people running for charities well those are wonderful things but just set those up after you've hit the the time and if it's a budget situation charge those folks a little bit more money to do the things that they're doing i think that we're losing a little bit of the magic of boston if they want to shift the times to being faster do it but at least set the time and let it put it in lights and put it in stone and let people go chase it fair fair counterpoint all right so the late start so my first boston 2006 at that time the race started at noon because that was the original start time in it and it ran that way all the all the way until the late 2000s when they moved it up to 10 a.m. for the main field and 9:32 I think it is for the women's elite field. And so it, with the noon start, I ate an early breakfast, got on the bus, went to Hopkinton, sat in the field with everybody <laughs> else, walked a mile to start, and I hadn't eaten anything between my early breakfast Ooh. and my noon start. So by the time 2.30 rolled around, and I was <laughs> approaching mile 20. The wheels came off, and this and that was the first race where I've just truly bonked. The, everything got fuzzy. I didn't know what was going on in my head. I I ended up slipping, let my, letting my goal of running sub-3 there that year slip away by, by under 30 seconds. And so, but it was a tough final six miles because I had literally no no gas left in the tank, simply because I hadn't managed that late start well enough. Incidentally, at the end, that was Easter weekend that year. They were handing out peeps to the sugar bunnies at the finish, <laughs> and I put about six of those back <laughs> right away, and the lights came right back on. <laughs> Maybe that says something. We should start having some peeps yeah. as, as I haven't had a peep since. <laughs> <laughs> but but it does beg the question: even with the 10 a.m. start, how do you deal with the late start? You, you, number one, you wake up a little, you wake up at the time, you know, that if you're a morning trainer and you train in the morning, you wake up at the time that you normally wake up, uh, assuming for the hour for us in central time, assuming for the hour that you have for, uh, uh, the, the time change. Um, but you eat and you don't need to eat a huge meal, but you need to eat. Um, the good news is that you don't, as, a, as opposed to the right, what you, what you probably needed to do with a noon start, you don't need to necessarily have any major meal or, 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 or have any real, you can do little top offs if you feel comfortable doing that. But I think you're safe to get about a 6am, um, 
f- belly fill um, and maybe do a teeny bit of snacking when you're on the bus and, and, and before the race. But I, I think that the difference in two hours makes an appreciable difference in terms of what you need nutritionally to do in the morning. Um, once again, this is why it's so important before your long runs that you're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. You don't have many more to do, but if you are doing them, to be sure that you are prepping your food appropriately and determining what you can eat and what you can't eat. Um, there's some strategies about how to do that. We're not going to go into those right now, but basically, really, you, you need to determine what, wh- how much how much belly full, how far belly full you can go um, before the race because you really don't want to be gelling um, from <laughs> 8 a.m. until all the way until the finish line. I think that's pretty dangerous. So that, that's one thing. And this is something I think people can practice. And I don't think you have to practice it in, practice it in the context of a long run necessarily. I think if you can, that's great. But sometimes with weekends, that's hard to do. But really what you want to do is just understand how your body works nutritionally when you start at that time and so if you're able to do a training run or a workout at the equivalent time in your time zone a couple of times before Boston that's going to be helpful so you can practice a little bit how big your breakfast is and what kind of snacking or not you might need to do in between yeah you can even do it on a Sunday for those of you who work a standard work week um, and and get up and and you know get a little something to eat and then get out on a run at in you know central time get out on a run at nine like you said Chris you don't have to run a long run but you do need to get some miles in so you know what's going on because my strategy on the bus as as I've learned it personally having done three Boston's is eat a decent sized breakfast sort of normally like I would and then and then get on the bus with some snacks I do dry cereal because mm-hmm. it's easy and I'll basically just graze from the time I get on the bus until the time I'm ready to head to Hopkinton and not eating a lot, but just a little bit kind of every now and then for the entire time that I'm waiting. gives me something to do and it also kind of keeps that stomach from getting empty. The other thing I'll do is bring some scratch or some sort of hydration product with electrolytes, one half a liter or, or you know a little bit more or so on the bus with me as well. So I can just take little sips of that to stay hydrated as, as I'm waiting as well. Yeah. One note on that, Chris, um, really important that we, that we reiterate and, and highlight something that you said there. If you're going to drink on the bus, uh, I don't mean alcohol. All right. But if you're <laughs> going to drink on the bus, do not drink just water. I think that, uh, I don't know how many times, um, the nerves and the dry mouth and the cotton mouth and you know you're not used to being waiting most most marathoners um, at the level that we're talking about they are not acclimated to waiting so long during a day for a race since we race in the mornings all the time um, you will guaranteed ruin your race if you're drinking a, lead, a full liter of water or, a lead, or two liters of water before the race you're going to com- without electrolytes you're going to completely flush your system I guarantee you're going to have a terrible day and it's sort of counterintuitive when you think about it um, I don't you know I stop my marathoners from drinking sort of that super hydration model we talked about in a couple episodes back I have them stop that at, at noon or two o'clock then on, on, a, on the day before the race I would still do that in a Boston scenario um, just to to help with the nerves and things, but I think it's really crucial that when they're drinking on the bus that they drink an electrolyte that they are comfortable with and yep. that they know. Scratch yeah. is fantastic because it's not so it's not so sweet. It yep. doesn't have that same sweetness that many of the others do. Yes, because if you're just drinking water, it flushes right through you. 
that your cells aren't actually taking in to, to use it. So those are our general tips on eating. Eat a decent or normal sized breakfast and then bring some light snacks that are easy on your stomach and a little bit of electrolyte drink with you on the bus to sip as you go. So with that, then we're going to get to this question of managing the logistics of the bus, the athlete's village in Hopkinton, and how do you sort of stay sane and also preserve yourself for the actual race itself? What are your tips there? Well, you know, <clears throat> if you can find us the sliver of of shade that is somewhere in that area, find it and, and hold it with every bit of power you have because as we found out last year with that incredibly warm morning that we had, uh, especially shocking to me, I think I've said this before, we was, I was standing at the start, right at, right at the finish line in downtown Boston. I walked out the door right at gun time and I'm like, oh, it's kind of nice out here. It's like 55 degrees, which isn't super optimal, but and then, and then I was watching my runners as I was tracking them and they were blowing up just <laughs> left and right. And I'm like, I found out later that it was 75 or some, some odd at that weather yes, at the close start. To 70, yep. It was just not, it was just crazy. But you know, I think the key thing is be prepared with a variety of different clothes. I mean, I think that it's t it's been hot lately, but it could easily be cold. It could easily be windy. Be sure that you're just you've got some extra stuff that you can um, that you can you can pack off and 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 get rid of. But make sure you've got some clothes because you're going to be out in the weather for a bit. You know, you don't get to sit on the bus all the way to the start line. You've got you've got some time. You got to wait. So bring some clothes. Um, you know, these days, finding a podcast that you like to listen to or maybe some music or something else to take you into a zone where you don't have to be super conscious, but you can kind of just let the internal um, monkey mind sort of calm down a little bit by not having to be thinking constantly about the race. A little distraction is very helpful and very useful. Um, sitting down, I mean, you do have a bit of a trek, especially if you're on, um, you know, we in Austin, we're using Duke's buses. Uh, many of other places use different buses. There's other ways of, of getting there. We're not going to go into that too much. Hopefully you guys have your plans already set with that. But, um, you know, you do have a bit of a walk, so you want to find a place to sit if you can. Uh, get, off those, get off those feet and let those dogs rest because they're about to go get some pounding in. Yeah, for that, I generally recommend if you're going to be in the athlete's village to bring a, s a towel, a blanket, something you can discard but that you can sit on and or potentially cover up with if it's cold bring something to do as you said you can listen to music or a podcast you could also bring the paper mm -hmm. like i brought the new york times from the hotel last year and was reading that yeah don't read brothers karamazov right that's <laughs> right. probably not going to work for you but yeah, you know read, don't, read don't something inspirational don't bring moby dick <laughs> and and the other thing i found helpful as i've done this a few years is to meet meet some people Say hi to somebody you don't know. Get their story. I met a really interesting guy on the bus last year that sat next to me, and he was he came to running later in life after his son had died in a horrible car accident, and he needed a way to cope, and he, so he started running and then turned that into a Boston qualifier, and wow. then he'd done Boston several years. And so Boston, for him sort of represented this celebration of his son who was no longer with him. And, you know, I was sitting there sort of feeling insignificant, <laughs> you know, about <laughs> my story relative to his. But I found every year I've been, you know, talking to people either in the village or on the bus. You just meet so many interesting people with so many cool stories. And obviously you don't want to 
waste energy going to meet people, but just having casual conversations can take your mind off things and also also potentially inspire you. Yeah, it's pretty rare to have a scenario where you have as many like-minded um, in terms of in terms of passion and the fact of being as as marathoners. Um, many folks they find themselves at parties or at, at other other social occasions where they're sort of an odd duck. Um, this is you know the Boston Marathon starting line or, or, or Athletes Village is a place where you're you're going to be around so many folks who have a similar story to yours. Theirs may be more dramatic in the case that you just shared with us, Chris, or some of them may be um, a, a little bit more uh, a, a little more banal. But basically, what you're going to find is some connection, and I think that's really cool. I think that's why you know 2013's the bombing that happened then um the resonance that that it has throughout the entire world but especially in the running community um to me is a testament to the fact that 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 all these folks on this day uh have chosen to run this race um, and they all had to earn it which is a it's a really cool thing and the only asterisk on talking to people is stay away from those crazy people that all they want to talk about is their plan and their race times. And oh, yes. <laughs> that are just overly nervous and worried. Which they'll throw away <laughs> at the moment the gun goes off yeah. anyway. So. so avoid those people. All right. So we're t- we've talked about those logistics bus and Athletes Village. <clears throat> then there's obviously the long walk to Hopkinton, which you, you can't avoid unless you're elite and you get, you get dropped off <laughs> right by the start. So you just you got to deal with it. Take your time. Know it's coming. You gotta, you're gonna, if you haven't run Boston, you're going to walk a mile. I think it's slightly more than a mile. Maybe less depending on which corral you're in. But you've got to hike, yeah. hike through Hopkinton, which, by the way, for me is just cool because you kind of you get to soak in Hopkinton a little bit and you see all those people on the other side of the fences where they're in their front yard. And, you know, they understand Boston like, like no one else because they're right there at the start watching thousands upon thousands of people pass them year after year. So I just kind of soak in the scene and you get in the cattle herd with everybody else. So you can kind of turn your mind off, but just look around, enjoy it and don't be annoyed that you're having to burn your legs a little bit as you head to the start. You know, even those folks who are out there thinking, you know, I, I kind of look at Boston as two ways. Uh, you're either going to, Go for it to run your PR to have the best day you can possibly have at Boston, and you're teed up and ready to go, and you're fit. Or you're 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 waving at the crowds and kissing babies, right? So you don't you you either way though. Even if either if those two those two basic extremes, I still think at this time you really need to do the same. This is what I'm going to be talking about at the beginning of my race plan: is you need to take it easy and you need to have fun. I mean, that's what this is all about. Soak it in, experience the moment, recognize the the amount of uh, of commonality that we have as a species, as people, and even though we may have different political views, different come from different worldviews, we uh, are sharing that moment and sharing that experience that goes, in my mind, way beyond what Patriots Day is, and way more to what it means to be a human who's who's pushing the edges of what they're capable of. So, either way, have fun, enjoy yourself. Yes, and a couple of other tips I have for the walk is. One, don't stop at the first set of porta potties as you <laughs> roll because everybody will have. And for those that might be in the first four corrals of any wave, there's actually some porta potties to the right of the start line that are not allocated for elites that c- anybody can use that are kind of in a, a grassy park area that tend to be open because no one actually looks that far up. And so that's always my secret spot to go grab a last minute bathroom break. And then the other thing I'd say is keep all your clothes on. 
if it's if it's cold until the very last minute because they're going to have people in the corrals with bags or near the corrals with bags that will be taking that stuff. So you want to keep everything on for if it's cold for as long as possible. And if it's not cold and it's sunny like it was last year and, and hot, then then obviously, you know, throw on your sunscreen and, and maybe a visor. But but definitely just be patient as you approach that starting line. You know, I, I do think if there's one piece of equipment that every runner should take to the start line of the Boston Marathon, it's either a visor or a hat. I think that no matter what the conditions are and what the circumstances are, um, that's always going to be useful. Easily to toss off, easy to keep with you, like a like a like Linus's blanket if you need a little if you need a little love. And um, I just think that's a really it's a really easy thing to to use. Even if you're not somebody who hats who wears hats, I still think it's uh, crucial. I know that I don't know how many people told me last year that they just wished if they had had anything they'd had a hat. And it, on a windy day when it's right in your face, you can you can tip it down. So that's that's one piece of advice I have for Boston specific. All right, so now we're in the corrals. We're ready to roll. It's time to talk race plan. And as we get into this, there's really two decision points to make before you decide exactly which plan or how to follow our approach here. The first is, am I racing or not? You just alluded to it. And for any of my athletes that are doing Boston for the first time, I highly encourage them not to race their first Boston because you don't know all the logistics. You don't know what you're getting into in terms of the race and the course and all those things. And if you're focused too much on time, then you tend to miss the experience and you might even come away not enjoying Boston because of all of those logistics. So, and that, that happened to me really in my first one in 2006. Not only did I bonk, but I came away sort of miserable about my experience because I was trying to run a certain time. I didn't hit it and I was frustrated by that. So you got to make that decision. And I think for first timers, I'd highly recommend running that first one just as, as an experience, soaking it all in. But it's something you got to think about, even if you're more experienced, sometimes you got to decide whether to go for it or not there. Yeah. You know, I think that that's really, in my opinion, while even if you're playing, even if you're, I'm going to, I'm going to contradict you, not really contradict you, but just stretch it a little bit and say, Although I do think that everyone who's running their first marathon should be extremely flexible about how they approach it and be willing at any point in time to sort of say, like we said before, though, last week we said no plan B. Um, maybe not, but there is a cut bait, and um, at some point you might want to do that. But I do think one of the great things about Boston is um, getting a little test run of it. It's, it's a huge benefit to do that. So I would encourage anybody who's going to, who has, a, who has the goals of getting back to Boston and doing it more times is to take that first time and at least get through the first 10 or 12 miles as if you were going to run the race um, pretty seriously because both the race plan that we're going to line out, both you and I, Chris, we're going to have a little bit of a different race plans, but they both um, are are easily, it's, they're set up easily for you to do that for the first bit. And then you can go back to chilling out and relaxing and enjoying yourself. Um, but again, as you did say, Chris, you need, you need to have your mind made up about what you're planning to do for the full 26.2 mile distance. Um, it, at least that and I do suggest if you hope to get back out there and you hope to get another chance at it, be sure you're at least paying attention. Be sure you're at least experiencing some of those undulations that happen in that first half mile that you're not just so, you know, Cheshire Cat grin that you don't recognize how 
big a drop that first half mile is and just use that you're definitely later going to get all the feel that you need to get of <laughs> of heartbreak and the four hills that are going on um, through newton but uh early on i think it's really important also to try to give yourself a chance to get a a feel for a little dress rehearsal especially if you're planning on coming back so that's one question do i race it or do i just enjoy the ride and soak it in a little bit now as we go into the first opening miles there's another question which is how aggressive should i be or should you be at the start in the first four miles and those first four miles the course drops about 300 feet and as you said that first half mile particularly is steep and i'm always surprised when i run it how steep it is i forget every year it's 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 steep so that you can't just kind of relax and roll you 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 definitely feel your braking happening no matter what even if you're really good at downhills so you have to make a decision though with those downhills and with all the chaos of the start because that's one thing about Boston no matter how fast you are there's going to be a lot of people around you that are also fast and so i've been as as high as the first corral and and spent time in second and third corrals and you still are surrounded by people and it's jammed. So depending on how someone deals with all that chaos, you may have a little bit of a different plan. But you and I kind of diverge in terms of how to approach the first four miles. After that, we're pretty consistent and similar. But the decision for the first four is, do I start a little bit slower than marathon pace and kind of work down to it? By my recommendation, that'd be about 30 seconds a mile. Or do I get right out like you would recommend and start right on? marathon pace or marathon effort so give us your two cents on that decision so ultimately my suggestion here is going to primarily be that my basic overall suggestion is to approach the boston marathon as a controlled marathon pace effort Um, many people will hear me say a negative split effort not a negative split race but a negative split effort which basically means a pretty relatively even split plan from start to finish Um, we'll get into a lot more of those details a little bit later about the late miles but early on from that perspective i think that um in my experience over the years um having having coached many boston marathoners um asking them to go 30 seconds per mile slower in the opening miles is is they just it's just almost it's nigh on impossible. And so many people have a, such a hard time. And if you're going to do Chris's plan, you damn straight better get to the back of your corral, as you're probably going to say later, Chris. Yep. You just have got to get to the back of your corral. Because if you are anywhere in the front half of your corral, you are going to be it is going to be a very hard time in those first four miles not going too fast. So my suggestion is in those first four miles, run MGP. Run your marathon goal pace. What do you want to run? What's your time? Run that pace. That's probably the only place in this entire race that I'm going to be asking you to really pay attention to your specific pace per mile. Because in that first four miles, um, if you're running at your MGP marathon goal pace at that point, let's say that your marathon goal pace is seven minute per mile pace. Um, it's likely to be 15 seconds in the first mile. It's maybe even 30 seconds easier Um and it rolls, it definitely drops and pops and drops and pops. But it, you're, you're going to be given some gifts from that downhill. And it seems to me, as long as you're very strict early on about locking into as close to the marathon goal time, goal pace that you can, you're going to put yourself in a really good spot later on. Now, this won't work 
if you are um, if if you are not fit enough to run the time that you want to run. If you want to run, say three hours, and you are not, and you are running. Uh, if you think you're fit enough for three hours, but you're not sure, and you maybe think maybe it really is 3.05, you need to stick to Chris's plan and go 30 seconds per mile back, I think. I'm, I'm in a complete agreement with Chris about that. My plan really works for those folks who are really specifically pay, pre- prepared for this race, ready to run downhills, are within a minute or so of what they think that their time goal is going to be, and they are... Um, confident that they can get it, but they know it's a bit of a stretch. Um, if you're if you're way fitter, go out slower. If you're not fit at all, go out slower. But in my plan, and I actually stretch this uh, this this entire plan of sort of running at your marathon goal effort, at least the first four miles at specific pace, and then from four to ten miles at your MGP effort, so that you can ebb and flow. It'll see some five-second bumps at five seconds faster, five seconds slower. If you're more than five seconds, it's pretty dangerous. But again, at that point, you shouldn't be paying too much attention to your watch, just except to make sure you're not going too quick. So, uh, yeah, I I think we diverge in that that space. Um, It sounds like for you, you're getting around around the fourth mile, you're going to get pretty close to MGP. Is that right, Chris? Yes. Yeah, and and, and just to finish off this first bit for me personally because i've done it both ways i i get so frustrated by the crowds and the people weaving and bobbing that i'd prefer to start slower as if for me be like i was going out to do a long run almost and just let the downhill so start sort of a minute slower effort but but have the downhill carry me to 30 seconds slower when it comes to actual pace then i can just let all the crazy people pass me start at the back of the crowd, I could really just mellow out and try to enjoy it. The time I did this when I was trying to be on a certain pace from the gun, I got so frustrated by the chaos of people weaving in and out and clipping me and, and trying to pinch me (laughs) in and, you know, next to the curb and so forth that I, I lost all this energy just being frustrated. And so for me, that's, that's, that's the decision point. I think it comes down to, as you say, experience, fitness levels and a personal decision about whether or not those crowds are going to frustrate you. But from there, well, one question about that first four miles, Chris, I, yep. I have not been blessed with the opportunity to run Boston yet. So, um, in those first four miles, is there a better place on the road to be? Is it better to be on the crest of, of the, of the road? Is it better to be to the left or to the right? Is there any, insight you can give in your experience sure. of having run them where you might position yourself in the road the best spot i've found is to be as close to the middle as possible because there tends to be more chaos on the edges as people are trying to go around each other some people will jump off on the side of the road and run to get around people and then of course once you get to the water stations which are really long in boston and they're on both sides of the road people are kind of going both directions towards those and then coming back so Obviously, you don't want to be a slave to the middle of the road and fight for that position, but being in the middle seems to avoid the chaos. And so if I'm kind of following this slower start plan in the first four miles, I'll kind of put myself in the middle of the crowd at a slower pace and just let people pass me around the edges. Yeah, that's the that's the experience that I've experiences I've heard from other runners as well that when they got to that posi- then they got near the crest of the road, they were in a much better spot. Um yeah. But as you asked me about from 4 on, I'm with you. 4 to 10 for sure. You want to find 
your marathon pace and then hit it as close to possible as you go through the rollers because you do ebb and flow with elevation from from five to ten but no major climbs and you can pretty much dial in within five seconds to your pace and just try to make that as easy as possible so what's happening y'all in case you don't if you haven't run boston um stop the podcast right now get on the baa site or or at least do a google search for boston marathon elevation chart and look at it i mean you you can't it can't be denied the kind of descent and the kind of pounding that's going to be going on, unless you've run a St. George or a Mountains to Beach or some other downhill race that is specific, that you where you've worked on this specific marathon downhilling, there's not another race quite like it. Even CIM, while it has these rollers and it sort of load goes down, it doesn't go down with the same kind of aggressiveness. And then it doesn't have later the hills in the middle of the race. So what we're trying to get you to do is to not pound those legs into the dust. And if you're going to do something on these hills, one thing I think that's really important, and I highly recommend doing some downhill running at or around the paces that you want to run and to try to pick some varying terrain where you roll a little bit and run at your MGP. You can be fresh or you can be tired. You can do it in a workout. We'd like to do it in a workout. Well, we do it in Austin year-round constantly. Um, But work on some descending to try to figure out where the pitch of your body position needs to be in order to maintain the pace that you want to maintain. That is the crucial piece. It's getting those hips in the right spot, getting your shoulders and your hips underneath you, your shoulders in the right position so you can take a little bit of advantage of that hill, but you're not putting that heel out and pounding the ground and getting that eccentric loading bang that happens in those early miles. Um, Even if you do have prepared um, you know, optimally for downhill running or, or, or varied terrain running in terms of ups and downs, I still think getting that body position and, and trying to run in such a way that you don't pound is one of the crucial and key things that you need to be, that you need to be doing. you got to have some leg strength left. Yes, that, you're going to. For the finish. So for me, as I've looked at the course and run it, even going from 10 then to 15, it's pretty consistent as well. So so kind of my plan would say go from 5 to 15 at close to marathon pace and try to find that rhythm all the way through 15. I know you break it down a little bit further, so give me those further sections after 10. All right, so Natick, going from Natick basically um, to Wellesley Square, um, you've got basically just a 40 foot drop in that 3.1 miles in that 5k and i just think this is an important place um to really pay attention to because here is the spot where um you're gonna those folks who did not take heed to our suggestions and were called like the sirens to the cliffs of 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 this race course will begin to start to come back to you a little bit um and so one thing i think it's really important to do um, is is to get to the center of the road again after you get your water after you hit your water stops. Get back to the center of the road, stay alert, and hold your position. Um, the vast majority, the, most of this race plan, in fact, almost this entire race plan is based um, on a plan that was uh, devised and utilized to great success over and over and over for many years by by the coach, great coach, uh, one of the best coaches, marathon coaches in the world, Bill Squires. Um, he's known 
best for being the coach of uh, Boston Billy, Bill Rogers. Um, he was the coach of the Greater Boston Track Club. Anybody that knows their history of the Boston has seen that picture, that wonderfully iconic picture of Bill Rogers um, in his Greater Boston Track Club uh, uh, white cotton tee that he used a sharpie to write the the letters of his of his club on and bill squires was an amazing character he was uh rambunctious had a had an incredibly um uh dry attitude and dry wit and he coached some amazing performers who ran incredibly well at boston in fact many of these folks were locals uh boss billy boss uh bill rogers was a local um randy thomas who was top 10 a couple times greg myers who won one year um, Jacqueline Garo, 1980 women's champion. Um, you know, he, he was instrumental in coaching these athletes to successful races at Boston. And he had them run mile after mile after mile on this route. Um, section after section, you know, this is back in the, in the 60s, 70s and 80s when this was possible to be able to, to get out on the route and, and run it. And of course they lived in that neck of the woods. So you're getting a plan from my perspective, that's coming from one of the greats. Um, in fact, uh, one of the one of the great stories is uh, Dick Beardsley, who who was not living in Boston. I think he might have spent some time in Boston, but he was he was not necessarily directly attached to the Greater Boston Track Club, but he was peripherally. But he was definitely coached by Bill Squires in the year that he and Alberto Zalazar went toe to toe and 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 punch for punch in that amazingly great race that's uh, the Duel in the Sun, as it's famously called. Um, this is the race plan. That this is the way that he described it for him to be running. So. Um, you know, Bill Squires, those of you who know, some of your histories know that the, uh, the old Elliot Lounge, this guy would sit on the bar and uh, scratch out to any on all comers workouts on paper napkins. I tell you, uh, that's a guy cut after uh, I'm, I'm that's I'm cut from that cloth for sure. So um, this plan that we're discussing that I'm discussing is, is really based on a, a really historical and very highly um highly used and very successful plan and I think it's just as applicable for the everyday runner um, who's prepared and ready for Boston as it is for the elites Chris I agree so when it comes from to that Natick to Wellesley Square section and you said as you mentioned you've got a little bit of downhill in there the main thing is MGP MGP staying but, at the same but pace to be a little bit careful on that downhill correct so we're in alignment there and where do you go from Wellesley Square? Because basically, from here to the finish, you and I are in lockstep on our on the plan. Absolutely. Um, um, this section here, um, Wellesley Square, basically to Newton's Lower Falls. That's uh, like thirteen point one to sixteen, um, and it's drops. Uh, much of that, this much of this elevation drop that I'm going to give you happens in that first uh, right right around that 16 mile mark. But they're getting 137 feet of elevation down to 49 feet of elevation. So this is a huge precipitous three quarters of a mile long hill. And I, I cannot tell you how important at this point it is to not run any faster than your marathon goal pace on that section. Um, again, this this requires you to have done some downhill running and to get your body positioning just right. Um, but you want to stay on pace. You do you cannot overrun this hill. You do not want to be leaning into it, letting yourself fly, pounding down it. You also don't want to be thinking about yourself as oh I've got to slow way 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 down. You need to have basically got your body positioning right so that you can run with the least amount of effort and try to stay as close to your marathon goal pace as you can there. Um, and at this point as well, um, 
if you've got bodies coming by you and you follow this plan to this point, be very cautious about yielding too much ground to any any massive number of people that are running by you because at this point in time, um, you should be catching people, maybe not on this three-quarter of a mile section, but definitely in this three-mile section hitting, getting to the 16th mile. You should be passing folks. If you're passing folks and they're coming back to you and you're on pace, awesome, great job. You're ready, you're ready for what's coming next. If you've got bodies coming by you in a bit of a stream, wake up. Wake up and get back in your get your head in the right spot. Now, again, don't do that on that three quarters of a mile downhill. This sort of uh, uh, the drop off there that drops off the off the uh, the lower the lower falls section. But um, be careful if you're yielding too much ground to runners around you. It's a crazy downhill, and I think it's not just something that might cause you to go a little bit of a little bit fast pace wise. But I remember when I bonked in 2006. I remember that this mile was my fastest mile of the race not just because of the downhill but because there's some sort of adrenaline that comes with it which is that you sort of realize you're 15 miles into the Boston Marathon you catch the magic of that a little bit and you you combine that with the downhill and suddenly you feel because it's pretty early in the race still (laughs) you suddenly feel invincible and I remember feeling that way as I flew down this thing in 2006 only to find myself trying to figure out what was going on with my brain about five miles later. So it's not just the downhill, but it's also kind of the placement and the energy. Yeah, by that time the course has spread out a bit. So you will, even in, even in those those folks who are in that sort of three hour all the way to 3.30, which is you know, a pretty massive, uh, compared to any other marathon that you run, you, you those folks in those zones are usually not, don't have a ton of people to run with. I mean, you, you were in the 245 range when you were pacing some of our athletes at, at Chicago and you didn't have very many bodies around right. you. And, and even up to about, you know, the three hours into 320, they, they were starting to get a few more people, but it took to the 330 and, and, and beyond where we started to see more massives, that massive, you know, conglomeration of folks that this is this race this race will will still be so you'll have separated a little bit and you'll have some room to run and it's really easy at this point to get called to to do to run faster than you should and i think of all the parts of the course this is the most important two to three mile section to get it right be patient and to summarize to this point we've made it to 16 miles the race hasn't really started yet and rarely does the elite race ever start before 16 unless someone goes off the front early. But basically what we're saying is you should run MGP effort. Correct. From, from 1 to 16. Yeah, in your case, you're, you're, three mi- you're two minutes behind, right? Somewhere in that yep. ballpark range, about two minutes behind. In my scenario, you should be going through the halfway mark, pretty close to your MG- to what you're hoping you're going to run. Um, and then you're still holding and sustaining it through to the 16th mile. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple plan. Pretty simple plan. Not really. easy, but simple. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, with the, yeah, with the exception of that decision point early about how it has to start, it's pretty simple. MGP, marathon goal pace, through 16. And then at 16, it starts to get interesting. We enter the Newton Hills. We've got four climbs all the way to heartbreak. Where do we go from here? You know, this is where Bill Squires, um, he called this, he's got a famous name for this, uh, he calls it the killer chain because um, it's a chain of basically stepping hills that culminates in heartbreak. Um, and, you know, the elevation drop, you go from 
uh, you go from basically 49 feet up to 236 feet. And this is from, uh, in, in, in my scenario, we're talking Newton Lower Falls to the Cleveland, to Cleveland Circle. So this is 16 to 22. Um, so you're basically going to climb from 50 feet up to 200, almost 250 feet, and then drop from 250 feet back down to 150 feet. So, um, you know, the, the suggestion that we have here is relax on the ups, relax on the uphill, run the flats and the downs hard. Um, what is hard? At this point, you should not be referencing your watch. It is what it is. Um, you probably want to get yourself to know where you want to be at the 22-mile mark. You probably want to write in Sharpie on your arm or have it available to yourself in a, in a pretty big, bold way to know at 22 miles where you want to be. So if you're able to execute what we're hoping you'll be able to do over the last portion of this race, you'll have a, a, a point that you know, and you can do just a teeny bit of math necessary to figure out how fa much faster you have to go. But you should be running... Um, really relaxed on your uphills and 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 not pushing the uphills instead run the flat sections and the down parts harder at this point you can go you can let yourself go on the downhills you've already if you've been conservative you've got your legs underneath you you're able to be a little more aggressive on those downhills and take advantage of them and just be sure that you're taking it relaxed and easy so that you got you can take advantage of this killer chain you guaranteed there's going to be bodies flying back to you if you've gotten anywhere close to what our race plan is you are going to have tens if not hundreds of people <laughs> flying by you going you'll be flying by in this section what you said though about the uphills is really really important for me it as as I talk about the Austin plan on exposition, I tell people don't fight the uphills, let them win, <laughs> let mm -hmm. them naturally slow you down. And the same thing is true here, as you say, push the downhills a little bit, but just don't fight. Relax on the uphills. Let people pass you there because you will either catch them on the downhill or you'll catch them in the finish, uh, close to the finish. And pace wise, though. If you're doing your job and relaxing those downhills, you might be running a little bit slower than pace on average. So I think anywhere from 10 to 20 seconds slower if you're doing your job and really relaxing on those uphills than your goal pace. But that's okay. Let it happen. It's the Newton Hills. Even the elite struggle here. This is where things blow up in the elite field. And so you got to also respect these hills. It's interesting going to the last one, Heartbreak, remember the first time I ran heartbreak even though I was partially depleted and starting to get a little bit wonky as the as the bonk came on for me <laughs> I remember being underwhelmed by heartbreak hill like thinking well this isn't that big of a deal and it really isn't if you take it by itself you know if you actually look at the elevation change on heartbreak it's it, you gain about 80 feet in the mile that is in at his heartbreak hill around mile 21 of the Boston Marathon. And that's very similar to the elevation game if, gain if you're going up Congress per mile in the Austin Marathon. No one ever really worries about the Congress Avenue hill in the Austin Marathon because it's in the first three miles. Yeah, it's not at mile 21. But <laughs> the fact that heartbreak is at mile 21, which already has some tough connotations in a marathon, but also at the end of this four hill chain that you just talked about is the reason why it's called heartbreak hill it's the placement of it versus the raw elevation change related to it you know i think in my experience in in, in talking to athletes who have run this race um i think really if you've got yourself girded and ready going into that 16th mile and when you take that right hand turn after you come 
off of the firehouse, that's really the real important spot to be to be vigilant and be ready. You know, you need to relax there. But every time from that point on that you get a flat or a or a downhill, you ought to be you ought to be working. And and I think that if you're able to stay relaxed in the first 16 miles, you're going to be able to execute that plan. Um, if you're fit enough to be running at the paces that you've um, th- that you've set for yourself in terms of your marathon goal pace, you're going to be just fine. Um, you know, it, we we talk about this all the time, Chris. The number of variables that go into proper execution of a, of a marathon race plan, the number of variables that can make anything go wrong are, are, are limitless. So while we're not telling you this is a foolproof way to get what you want, we do have years and years and many, 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 many marathoners who have done this and had great experiences this way. So take it from us as, in Chris's case, someone who's done it a couple of times, in my case, having coached hundreds of people to executing a great race plan on this course, this method works. So marathon pace through 16, then control yourself on the uphills, give a little bit of time back through Newton. And if you've done your job, you'll get to mile 22 and you'll be ready to finish this thing out. You've got a net elevation drop in the final five miles of this race. So, but you aptly note that you kind of have to break it into a couple of different sections because of the way it plays out. Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to kind of look at this thing as 22 miles to 25 miles and then from 25 miles to the finish line. Um, and so Cleveland Circle uh, is really where uh, it, 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 you're really coming off of the hills and, and you're about to do basically an elevation drop from about 147 feet down to 20 feet. So you're still getting a good bit of drop there. It's a gentle downhill um, and at this point in time, um, I don't know how many times I've heard people who have followed a close plan, either a negative split plan that they were able to be effective with, or this sort of negative, this sort of, uh, marathon pace effort plan that we're, we're describing right now. I, I, I can just, the, the sheer elation and jubilation and excitement that at prepared athletes have through this section. Um, I have seen athletes run somewhere in the vicinity of two minutes over the course of this from this in this section in, in, in dropping two minutes um amy anderson who i coached uh for a number of years and who was a coach for us here at rogue i will never forget helping pace her through this section i was she was i was literally pushing bodies away <laughs> leading in front of her in a pole position ruth was sort of running to her side and i was just at first i was trying to run beside her and i realized i couldn't i we just had a phalanx set and, and positioned to try to run her through the bodies um because we were just there it is just shrapnel out there um but you really do need to keep concentrated and keep focused through here you're not done and and almost everybody that's run marathons knows this but you know the famous sitco sign that comes up at with a mile to go is uh, a a real a real heartbreaker <laughs> because it, it it hurts a whole lot and so if you're able to maintain your speed and keep focused and, and, and not be too aggressive, you know, one of the things we've suggested in our other marathon plans is to never go faster than five seconds per mile faster each mile. Um, I think in this race plan on this course, if you've got it, you can do that. At 22 miles, you can take that risk. You just have to realize that you might give up a little bit in that last section, that Kenmore Square or where, right around where the Sitco sign is to going into the finish line. Um, there's a little bit of, of tacking ups. Of course, there's a little bit of uphill that you have. Um, on the very last stretch going into the finish line. Um, but here, hopefully, 
you will know you know you will know what you're going to have. Everybody that gets to 22, there are no surprises at this point. Everything is well known, and um, what you're trying to do here is execute and keep on your feet, keep turning over, keep focused, and use that gentle downhill is to the best of your ability. And like I like to say, as a coach to my marathoners late in the race, go fishing. As you say, if you've done this right, you're going to be catching people, and if you're not passing people, that means you're slowing down. So pick out shirts and singlets ahead of you and go after them because most people will be coming back to you at this point. So give them a little bit more of an idea of what you mean by go fishing. How, what, what do they need to do? What, what do you, what are, give us a look, sort sure. of a, a logical way of looking at this or a practical way. When I'm in this mode, I look ahead maybe 40 to 50 meters ahead. So not right in front of you, but enough to give you something to reach for. And pick out a shirt that's bright or singlet that's bright that stands out sometimes the person that's in that singlet might have to do <laughs> with who I pick out, you know, <laughs> as a guy, we often chase women, you yep. know, but, uh, so women often <laughs> chase guys. Yeah, so, you know, there's maybe some of that going into the thing, but you pick somebody out that can be a good carrot to go after them. And then you focus on pushing until you find yourself passing that person. And then you do the same thing again. You pick another shirt to go after singlet to go after, and chase them down because you, if you're doing that, it gives you something to focus on to distract yourself from the pain, but it also gives you little wins that you can start to rack up that give you momentum as you head towards that finish line. Yeah, when I coached collegiately, I, I used to say up and around, um, which is the same basic idea. And I would usually, especially in cross country, I would say, go get pink which would mean pink shirt, go yep. get red. And um, if we were running at our conference championship, um, I could always say, go get Oklahoma or, <laughs> or whoever, or go get Oklahoma State or whoever it was. Occasionally I would say, go get ugly orange because that Oklahoma State was always ugly orange. But up and around or go, go, go fishing um, is the quintessential, this is the greatest race to do that with because while many of your compatriots and folks, folks that you, you, you earned the right to get to this race course, you will be passing people that you probably won't ever get a chance to pass in other races again. If you run in Chicago, you're probably passing people who are probably five minutes, ten minutes for a marathon time faster than you. But at Boston, the great equalizer, you're able to go bring them in. The other thing I would say, as you close this one out, and again, I think if you've done it right, you can probably run 15 to 20 seconds faster per mile, maybe even more then your target pace if you get yourself to 22 in a position to close it out. But once you get in that, into that last mile past the sit-go sign, you've got to be ready mentally for that because it's going to be four, five, six deep crowds and the energy is going to be there. But two things. One, you got to be a little bit careful not to let it all out too soon as you've referred to before with some of your athletes. But then secondly, you've got to realize that that, stretch down Boylston at the end it's not short and I can and remember it's not flat <laughs> and it's not exactly <laughs> flat and I can remember watching the three hour mark tick pass as I was running down Boylston in 2006 and then I remember it last year when I had to walk that distance <laughs> after I had gotten a stress fracture in my heel it's about a half mile once you get on to Boylston from there from that corner to the finish line that's that's a significant amount of time. You know, it could be two and a half to four, four minutes, five minutes, depending on how fast you are. And you got to be able to focus. And so I would just 
think about your strategy for that and what might be best for you. For some people, it might be just to fixate on that finish line. For me personally, the finish line at that point is still too far away to be focused on it. So I try to look around and soak in the crowds to build energy from that before I might focus on the finish line in that last two to 400 meters. But it's a long stretch and just be prepared that it's going to feel like it's taken a little bit of time to, to run that stretch on Boylston. Yeah, two notes here. You know, number one, I don't remember what, what year it was that Desi got second, but I will never forget watching um, the number of, of lead changes and back and forths. It seemed like that, that, that section was a mile long because they went bat at each other and back and forth and back and forth. And the year that Meb won in 2013, I think I might have shared this on the podcast before. If I have, I, I apologize, but I love this story of, of Meb getting so close to the finish line, knowing that he had uh, that Kenyan guy running him down and he was sick. He started to get nauseous and was about to puke and he knew that if he vomited to the side that this guy was going to have all the energy he needed it was long enough stretch for him to be able to know that he could get caught so he puked in his own mouth in his own hand and then threw it to the ground <laughs> and I, oh, the, to me it's like one of the great stories of American distance running in, in the history of American distance running but there's enough time for those kinds of things to be happening yeah. um, and then one other suggestion I have um, at this point in time you don't really need to go fishing you're, you're, you're too close to the finish for that but what I do suggest you do is look at the crowd and pick somebody out in the crowd. They'll find you. It's amazing how they're looking for eye contact. The people who go out onto Boylston want to connect with you. The people of Boston, Massachusetts want to connect with you. The people of New England will come in here for this big party to connect with you. And not even the bombs of the bombs on Boylston in 2013 can st could stop people from coming out. And use that opportunity to connect with people. I, I guarantee you, you'll be moved close to tears, if not actually crying down that last section, as you realize that people will start calling out your name or calling out your blue shirt or red shirt or whatever it is that you've got, knee socks or whatever you're, whatever you're wearing, people will respond to. And so I suggest maybe every 100 meters or so over that last 800 meter section, pick out six or seven different times to look at the crowd and get let them let that lift you this is the magic of this race and uh it is uh, they're there for you because it's your olympics and they know it's your olympics they're cognizant of that they recognize it and they want to connect with you and it can be a great boon and a great energy boost soak it all in you've earned it now in summary really our plan is pretty simple you know, as an aside, there are some plans you'll see that go mile by mile and try to adjust for the terrain in each mile. We're saying that's crazy because you can't really focus mile per mile and hit a specific pace. Our plan's pretty simple. 1 through 16, run marathon goal pace. Or if you're following my approach and being a little more conservative in those four, first four miles, do that. Then get on mile, marathon goal pace from 5 to 16. 16 to 21. Newton Hills, give a little bit of time back. Don't fight the hills, but start to be a little bit aggressive on the downhills. And then 22 to the finish, close it out and go fishing. Pretty, pretty, pretty simple. Pretty darn simple. For a race that's known for its complexity and difficulty of executing in, um, the simplest plan is the best. But, you guys, this really requires, I want to reiterate this again, at least in my case from the perspective that I'm coming at it from, 
that you will wear yourself out if you're trying to run your specific marathon goal pace on this course. It's not doable. It can't be done. There's too much undulation of pace, it's undulation of hills and, and elevation. So you need to just stay within that five to seven second window back and forth and back and forth, except for 16 to 20, at least through the first 16 miles, most assuredly. You need yep. to be be sure that you don't want to be 10 seconds too fast. If you continue to be 10 seconds too fast, you're gonna you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. As I have my rule of threes in Boston, it's even more so. My rule of three is well, however seconds or minutes you are too fast at the halfway point you can multiply that by the by three so if you're if you're 30 seconds too fast at the halfway point you're probably going to run at least 90 seconds slower if not more if you're a minute too slow too fast at the halfway point you're probably going to end up three minutes too slow at the end of the race so keep that in mind and believe me there are people many many people in fact i bet you if you did the same critical analysis that you did for the austin course (laughs) um and you try to figure out exactly how many people uh how much there was i guarantee you that you're seeing 10 plus minute positive splits in some cases even more this is the race that more people walk off of it's probably the dnf champion of the world in terms of people walking off this course and it's not an easy course to get back home to from so uh you know it, it it's something that's something to keep in mind but it, please enjoy this thing but but don't be too to really specific with your Garmin. You know, we've talked before about the importance of effort-based training. It's really important for this race to be an effort-based racer. All right. There you go. So that that's our first episode in this little mini series on Boston, episode 14. We've given you a little bit of history. We've given you, you've given you some way too early race predictions <laughs> and now you have your race plan ready to go. We'll come back a week out from the race and tell you some inspirational stories from the history of Boston to get you primed and ready to go for Marathon Monday. Thanks, as always, from listening for listening. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rogue Running. You can also subscribe and download us on iTunes. So check us out, out there. As always, thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you soon. Later, peeps.